come from. I've told you so many times you could almost repeat it, that the book of Romans is about the gospel. Paul said there in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And so most of the book is Paul presenting the gospel, justification by faith, not by works. And then in chapters 9 through 11, really giving us an illustration of the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people, Israel, how God will still be faithful to his promises. Chapter 12, we moved into consecration, how if you have been saved, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ and you recognize what God's done for you, the only appropriate thing is to present your body and your life to him. And therefore, he says, I want you to give your whole life to the Lord, that you might know the will of God. And so we've been studying then how to live out this consecrated Christian life in relationship to one another. He immediately talks about how we're members of the body of Christ. How we, that's why we did connect. That's why we continue to do connect. Why we, we have a relationship with the Lord, but it is also in part through knowing and serving His people. And in chapter 14 and 15, the focus really has been on the problems that happen in the body of Christ. Although we're all saved uh, if we've, in the body of Christ, it doesn't mean we all agree with each other. You know, like uh, Jane Vernon you know, would say, you don't have to agree with me. You'd be wrong if you don't. But uh, sometimes people don't just see what God and us see. And uh, so we're talking about gray areas and whether or not you can do certain things. And so Paul in Romans 14 and 15 is, is emphasizing unity and loving each other and really accepting each other the way God has accepted us. And we finished up uh, th- that section really in verse, uh, verses uh, uh, 9 or 8 through 13 last time we were together. And I talked about how God's given us three what I called perfect gifts to enable and empower us in this Christian life. The Son of God, we'd all agree he's perfect. The Scriptures, the Word of God, which Paul then quotes. And then finally, the power of the Holy Spirit that we might abound in hope. So all, that, all the tools we need to become complete and mature in Christ and to serve and love each other, he's already given to us. And then he really goes from commanding the church in Rome to commending the church in Rome in verse 14. And that's where we are today. So take a look at Romans 15 and verse 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this journey that we've had through the book of Romans. Really, I believe to your very heart for a lost world and for your found people. Lord, to know what you've done in sending Christ uh, to save us from ourselves and our sin. Lord, we praise you today that you've done it. Thank you that although we're not all that we should be, we're definitely not what we used to be. And we can see the changes that you've made. We thank you when other people can see the differences in us. Lord, we look forward to heaven and we are willing to abide even during affliction because we know you're changing us by your spirit into your very image. Thank you that you're committed to that. You're more committed to it, Lord, we confess, than we are. But you've already seen us complete in heaven, complete in Christ, and we look forward to the day that happens. And tell them, Lord, I pray that as a church, this church, we would grow in our capacity to love each other the way that you do. Forgiving each other, Lord, recognizing that we don't have to agree about everything to really reflect who you are. In fact, that gives us the opportunity to demonstrate mercy and grace and forbearance. And now, Lord, today I pray that you give us insight into this verse that Paul wrote to this church. And ultimately, because you've preserved it, 
We know you wrote it for us. So teach us. Commend us if you can, Lord, I pray. And help us grow in that commendation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, they tell us statistically, 80% of us at some point in our life will need and get counseling of some sort. We'll get some form of counseling. I don't know if you've ever gotten counseling, went in for counsel with somebody, a pastor or a therapist or whatever. I want to talk a little bit about counseling today. You can tell that from my title, Competent to Counsel. I believe uh, many people do need counsel. In fact, I believe all of us do at one time or another, and counseling is not a bad thing. Um, The Bible says it very clearly, if you're not sure about that. Where there is no counsel, the people fall, it says in Proverbs. And plans fail for lack of counsel, uh, it says there again in the book of Proverbs. If it wasn't so that counsel was important, God obviously wouldn't have sent his son and then called him, among other things, wonderful counselor. We recognize that. Now, if I were to ask you, why was it that Solomon was so wise? I hope and trust you believe he was. The Bible says he was the wisest man on the earth. How did he become wise? You would probably, if you know your Bible, you would say, well, Bob, it's because God asked him to ask the Lord for anything that he wanted. Remember? And Solomon recognized he was no David. He was having a hard time. He was now the king, but he was a young man and he was not respected. He didn't have the abilities of David, his dad. And so he cried out, Lord, give me. I'm like a child who go, goes in and out in front of your people. I don't really know how to be a king. And this is a great and mighty people. Please give me that capacity to have wisdom. And God honored that. He was blessed that he asked for that. We know he asked for it and God gave. By the way, isn't it interesting in James? It says, if any of you lack wisdom. And if there was a parenthesis, it would be, and all of you do <laughs> from time to time. It's talking about trials, but if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and upbraideth not and it will be given. That's what we need to do. God, I need wisdom. I need to know what to do. We go to the source of it, of course, to God himself. And, of course, God poured into Solomon a discerning mind, a wise. People came from all over the earth. The queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth, the Bible says, because of his fame and how wise he was. And yet, if that's the only basis upon which you think he derived his wisdom you're mistaken if you read in the book of proverbs he talks about how to get wisdom jot it down proverbs 19 and verse 20 proverbs 19 and verse 20 the wisest man in the world says this listen to advice and accept instruction and in the end you will be wise And then jot down Proverbs 1 and verse 5. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Well, where did Solomon get it? You say, well, he got it from the Lord. Not just from the Lord, directly, supernaturally. But if you read the Proverbs, you'll find out in chapter 4, he got some of it from his dad, David. He talks about things his father taught him. And in chapter 31, he calls himself Lemuel. That's just a little pet name. He's talking about himself, the Proverbs 31 woman. How did he know what she would look like? Bathsheba taught him that. His mom taught him that. He says so. So we need to understand that even the wisest man in the world who asked God for wisdom and got it admits that you get it from God's people. Sometimes even, believe it or not, parents. I know it's hard when we're young to think our parents can teach us anything. As we get older into our teens, it seems like our 
parents, at least our fathers, know nothing, you know. And then we get a little older, and it's amazing how much they've learned, you know, uh, the older we get. But the fact is, God wants us to see the value of counsel, his counsel, and to realize he uses other people. But we also would admit and agree that not all counsel is of equal value. Uh, Certainly that is true in our world today. Hans Eisenach, born in Germany, a famous psychologist from Great Britain, did a famous study. Uh, Actually, he was, when he died, the most quoted psychologist in the world that studied 500 people who had problems in their life, 500 people. Uh, Those that went in for uh, psychoanalysis after one year of treatment, they found that 44% of them were better. Those that went in for psychotherapy after a year, 53% of them were better as a result of it. Those who actually got to see a psychiatrist, they all didn't, but those who got to see a psychiatrist, 61% were better. And those who went to nobody at all, 72% were better. Uh, Perhaps you're familiar with Norman Rockwell, the pithy painter who captures moments in everyday life that just tell a story. There's a an image perhaps you've seen before. It's one of my favorite. I like a lot of his stuff. This is of that boy who's about to get a shot in the doctor's office. And if you look close, of course, the doctor's preparing the hypodermic needle. The boy's prepared himself uh, for it. But he's leaning over, staring at the doctor's degree or accreditation, making sure. And he seems very interested at that moment to know that that doctor really, well, he has a right to do what he's about to do. I want you to jot down Mark 4 and verse 24. It's there that Jesus said these words, take care what you listen to. Be careful what you listen to. And the question I have today is who is really qualified to counsel somebody else? Who's qualified to counsel you? And what makes you qualified to counsel somebody else? Do you need a degree, uh, MFC, marriage and family counseling, or a degree in psychology? Do you need to be a psychiatrist, a trained professional? You have to be a pastor and have been through seminary in order to counsel somebody? And the answer to that is absolutely not. And you'll see it from this text. Because in one verse, Paul the Apostle commends a whole church, a large church, by the way, that they were competent to counsel, which is the way you really could translate the phrase that you're able to admonish one another, that you're capable to counsel. So three qualities that he describes this church as having, and we say, God, This needs to be true of me individually and us as a church. Put this down. First of all, it's because you're full of goodness. That's what he says. Concerning you, my brethren, I, myself, I'm convinced you are full of goodness. Now, please notice he doesn't say you're ready to counsel, you're ready to confront because you're full of thoughts or full of opinions. You know in the story of Job... Job lost everything. I mean, it is the ultimate classic tragedy that could happen. He lost his children, all of them in a day. Hard to even imagine that. In addition, and not nearly as important, he lost his wealth. He lost his health. I mean, everything fell apart. Three of his friends came from a long distance to comfort him. And I I remind people that they're a perfect example of how to comfort somebody up until the moment they open their mouth. As soon as they open their mouth, everything falls apart, and they do a terrible job. He later calls them miserable comforters, are you all? 
if they had just stayed with their mouth shut, they would have done fine. Uh, as they grieved and they sat with them and they made it clear they cared, um, but they didn't uh, stay there. Most of the book of Job is them giving their opinions to Job, one after the other, as to what he must have done wrong and, and how, well, how God's dealing with him and what he ought to do. And they're wrong. We know they're wrong because we read the end of the book. But there's a guy who comes along after them, a younger man who's sitting listening to all this. His name is Elihu. And Elihu doesn't like the fact that Job's friends haven't really answered Job's arguments. They haven't answered well or wisely. And he's just kept quiet because he's young. But it bothers him. He can hardly handle it. You can write it down. It's Job 32, verses 18 and 19. And here's what it says. He said this after he listens to it all, 32 chapters of it. I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins. It's about to burst. And so Elihu tells Job his opinion. And you're kind of going, well, maybe finally the guy's going to get some good advice. Uh Uh-uh. Elihu's advice is better than the other three, but at the end of the book, God speaks of all of Job's friends as darkening counsel, unwise counsel. It wasn't right on. Just because you have something to say and you're so sure of yourself doesn't mean your counsel is right. What does it mean to be full of goodness? We'll put this down. It means you're living a godly life. That's what it means, to be living a godly life. You know, When we think of this word goodness or something that's good, we often think about it being a relative comparative word. This is is okay, this is good, this is better, this is best, like that. But that's not how the Bible uses the word most of the time. Remember the man that came to Jesus and he addresses him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, Jesus didn't respond to that saying, Well, thank you for thinking my teaching is good. I appreciate the compliment. No, he didn't. Instead, he doesn't even answer the question at first. He says, why do you call me good? Don't you know there is no one good but what? But God. Well, wait a minute. Now, Jesus is saying that word means something else than the way the guy was using it. Ultimately, in God's economy, there is one good. That's why it says in Romans, back in chapter 3, there is none that does good. Well, yeah, I have a friend. My grandmother says he's good. But no, that's talking about something else. There is none that does good that amounts to what's good in God's eyes because all are sinful. We're riddled with it. But God's goodness is something different. It's something beyond that. Jot it down, Psalm 101 and verse 6. Psalm 101, verse 6, talking about that little boy trying to decide if that doctor should give him the shot. Listen to what David said about who can minister to him. Psalm 101, 6, My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks, here it is, in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. You're able to counsel, he says, because first of all, you're full of this characteristic of God, his very goodness. We remember that's one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The Spirit of God produces the character of God in the child of God. Remember years ago, having a friend who was taking a college class at one of the community colleges in marriage and family. And they kept raving about the class, all the things they were learning. They were single. They were looking forward to getting married. And they were getting all these insights on marriage and family. And, and they said, there's just one thing, though, about the class. The professor is amazing and the classwork is great. They said, but the problem is... Uh, the teacher themselves, they're in the midst of a divorce. That, that might trouble me. Well, maybe it wouldn't trouble you. Maybe it should, though. 
I mean, would you trust a dentist with crooked and missing teeth to work on yours? Listen to this. Uh, two brothers living together. One was a medical doctor. The other was a rabbi with a Ph.D. in theology. Someone called the house and asked for Dr. Schwartz. The housekeeper said, well, which one? The one who practices or the one who preaches? We are to be those who live out. This goodness is not just an inherent quality of being like God, of being moral. It is more than that. I want you to hear what William Barclay, an excellent commentator on the Bible, expert in history and the Greek language, says. He says this word, goodness, it's agathosune, this word is unique to the Bible. The word does not appear in secular Greek. That means it does not describe the type of goodness you would see outside of those who believe in God. It's not the goodness you hear Martha Stewart talking about. It is a spiritual goodness. Barclay defines agathosine goodness as meaning virtue equipped at every point. That means that if we as Christians are going to exhibit goodness, then we are ready always to do what is right. See, some will say of another person, oh, he's a good guy, or she's a good person. But what makes them good? Well, they never broke the law. But never breaking the law does not make a person good. It makes them a law-abiding person. Doing nothing wrong does not make me good. John Wesley's rules for Christian living begin with the first rule for his life, do no harm. But he follows that with the second rule, do as much good as you can. See, goodness is more than not doing bad. It involves virtue equipped at every point. It means that we're prepared at every moment to help, to improve, and to make better. This idea of goodness is I believe God and I'm living for him, and it's demonstrated in my life, but also it pushes me to care about people who are in need of a change. Jot it down, Psalm 25, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 25, 8 and 9, I think, says it very well in terms of the character of God. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways, he guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. And so Paul says to this whole church, you guys are full of this characteristic of God in terms of the morality of your life and also the way you care and must minister to one another. Put this down letter B. You are also then filled with all knowledge. Filled with all knowledge. Now, by saying that, he's not saying you're all know-it-alls. Quite the contrary. I want to suggest to you it's very focused. When the Bible speaks of knowledge, and in this context for sure, It's talking about a particular kind of knowledge. Put it down. It's because, first of all, you know the Lord. That is supremely important because they know the Lord. Paul is writing this epistle, this letter, this treatise to the saints that are in Rome, not just to people who go to church. So we're not just talking here about mere human knowledge. We're talking about spiritual knowledge that first and foundationally is a person who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. They become regenerate, and therefore the Holy Spirit is living in them. Now, you all know the difference between knowledge and wisdom. The classic story is of that company that bought that million-dollar piece of machinery, and it was just one of a kind, amazing, until it broke down and they couldn't fix it. And they tried to get a hold of the company that manufactured it, but they were out of business. And so they were losing a lot of money. Finally, they got through sources. The guy, one of the engineers who had actually built the thing and asked him to come out and try to fix it, he said, no problem. Showed up with a little tool chest. Everybody's watching because they couldn't figure out what to do with it. He took out a little ball-peen hammer, went over to the corner of it, tapped it once. 
Suddenly, they pushed the button on, started working perfectly. They were amazed. They were ecstatic. They were excited. Thank you, thank you, thank you. They were back online. And everything was great until he sent them the bill. And the bill came in for $1,000. And uh, the CFO of the company called me and said, I don't understand. We're really glad you were able to fix it. It's amazing. But why $1,000? I watched what you did. He said, well, did you look at the invoice carefully? I itemized it for you. He said, what do you mean? He said, just look at the invoice. And there the CFO looked at it and it said, one hammer hit, one dollar. Knowing where to hit the machine, $999. Look up wisdom just in about any encyclopedia or dictionary and it will tell you what you already know. It's not just knowledge, but it is the proper application of the knowledge. That is what we call in our language Wisdom. However, you need to know when you read that word in the Bible, it's something more than just that. Well, the Bible is very, very clear about that. The Bible says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom in God's book involves a right relationship with God and a holy reverence for God. But the first quality of these people is they know the Lord. They have that relationship with God. James speaks of two types of wisdom. He says there's a wisdom from above, but there's a wisdom from below. Different. There's worldly wisdom, but then there's heaven-sent godly wisdom. You need to think about that. Are you getting counsel from somebody who's wise or otherwise? According to the Word of God, jot down Psalm 1-1. How blessed, how happy is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That's what the Bible says. In other words, it's not just that I'm not getting counseling from somebody who's some reprobate, sinful, wicked person, but from someone who does not even have a right relationship with God. Remember, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there's no God. The person who leaves God out of their life, of their plans, that's not the person, as smart as they may seem, as trained as they may be, that you want to counsel with you, As the old saying says, remember, no filter at the faucet will do the trick if there's a dead horse in the reservoir. Somebody may be very smart, very educated, very sympathetic, but if they lack the possession of God's spirit, while their career may be very successful, very spectacular, it'll never be supernatural. Be careful what you listen to. Put this down to number two. This knowledge is not only knowing the Lord, but it means you know and believe God's word over man's wisdom. You know and believe God's word over man's wisdom. I want you to jot down Psalm 119, verses 99 and 100. You know the Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, longest chapter in the Bible. And you know what it is? It's all about extolling the greatness of God's word. How incredible God's word is. Psalm 119, verses 99 and 100. Listen to what the psalmist says. He says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Here's why. For thy testimonies are my meditation. And he says this, I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. Did you understand why he's wise? He says, because I'm taking in your word and I'm living out your word. I'm keeping it. I'm meditating, I'm pondering it, and I'm practicing it. That's where wisdom comes. You see, counsel is only as valuable as it is consistent 
with what God's Word teaches. The fact is, a lot of people who say they want counsel aren't really looking for counsel at all. Pastor Chuck Smith said this about counseling. He said, I have found that so oftentimes when a person comes and they say, oh, I need counseling, they really don't mean that at all. What they are really saying is that I need someone to affirm that the wrong things I'm doing are right. Tell me that I'm okay in doing that. They really don't want counsel. If you say, well, uh, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that, then they'll go look for another counselor. They're not interested in just knowing what God's Word says as a guide for their life, but they are more interested in just being affirmed in their position. May I say, anybody who does counseling, any pastor, knows the truthfulness of what Pastor Chuck is saying. Not that everybody is that way, but there are many people. That's why they seek out counselors. Too often when married couples want counsel, they're seeking someone to agree with them against their partner to win an argument, and it usually doesn't win anything. We need to start with the reality that that counsel is valuable because it is, in fact, revealing the true word of God. I'll never forget, I got a phone call from a woman. I have no idea who she was. She did not attend our church. She must have looked this up in the phone book back then or whatever it was. And here's what she said. She said, I want to know what you think about a person who has been divorced and wants to now remarry. She said, I know what Paul says. I want to know what you say. (laughs) Well, that spoke volumes all by itself. Uh, Are you wanting counseling because you want to know what God wants? Or are you looking for someone simply to agree with you? You probably don't know the name Robert Coles. You might. He's still alive. He teaches at Oxford as a leading psychiatrist there. He said this. Listen to this. This is amazing. Nothing I have discovered about the makeup of human beings contradicts in any way what I've learned from the Hebrew prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Amos, and from the book of Ecclesiastes, and from Jesus and the lives of those he touched. Anything that I can say as a result of my research into human behavior is a mere footnote to the lives in the Old and New Testament. This is this leading expert in psychiatry and commendable in that. The problem is the wisdom of this world, which is very prevalent today in many counseling offices and psychology offices and frankly even Christian psychologists too many times, is this whole theory that what you really need to do, you won't be complete until you find yourself. And you hear that from people. I've just never really understood who I am. I've grown up and I was always what my parents told me I ought to be. And then I went to church and I was what they told me I'd be. I went to school and I was what my friends wanted me. I don't even know who I am. I'm trying to find myself. Maybe you know somebody who's saying that. Maybe that somebody is even you. But Jesus made it abundantly clear that finding yourself is not the answer. Jot it down, Matthew 10 and verse 39. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will Find it. So I guess there you have it. Either Abraham Maslow is right and you've got to find yourself, or Jesus is right and you need to lose yourself. There's a clear conflict between pop psychology and the teachings of Jesus Christ. God's Word presents a distinctly different approach to what's wrong with people than does psychology. And there are many examples of that. Psychoanalysis is all about looking in and looking back on your past for the answer as to why you are what you are. The Word of God is completely different. God would say, no, the answer is looking up 
and looking forward. What does Paul say? Forgetting what lies behind, I press on for the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. See, the answer in God's word is not an examination of ourselves and understanding the old life. The answer is about accepting a new one that comes from Jesus Christ. Psychology would say that the source of healing is understanding yourself and understanding your past. God's word would say it's all about embracing Christ and his cross. Very different. Psychology, as much as you may want it to be, is not a true science. It's not like chemistry or math or biology. The word psychology, by the way, is from the Greek. Psyche, suke in the Greek, all through the New Testament. Soul. Logos, ology in any word, means the study of, the word of. And psychology is the study of the human personality, the study of the soul. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with trying to study it, but the fact is, it's not true science, it's pseudoscience. There are many, many theories. There's absolutely no consensus, unlike the other sciences. The second problem is that psychology, while it may have some truth, no question about that, it's absolutely riddled with man's opinion, with earthly wisdom and fleshly assumptions. It'll say you need to discover yourself, accept yourself, You need to develop yourself, and Jesus says, no, you need to die to yourself. Oh, you need to forgive yourself. You won't find that in the pages of Scripture. If you mean by that, I need to accept God's forgiveness, fine. But you'll see psychology will take you in a completely different direction. It's filled with man's ideas. But God's word, of course, alone is pure and trustworthy. Man's wisdom is flawed and polluted. Put this down, letter C. He says to this church, you are able to counsel each other. Now, the word that's translated in most of our Bibles here, admonish, means to warn. It means to confront in love. It's kind of the Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. And it's the Greek word nuthateo. Um, it, it involves the word nous, which is mind, and tefemi, to place or to put something in mind. It literally means to call attention to something. And the idea is of someone letting someone know something is wrong. And something that needs to change. By the way, this is very much at variance with the way much counseling is done today. Much counseling that you will find in the world today is all about sympathy, which there's nothing wrong with that, and compassion for someone, and letting them talk, and letting them figure out what's going on, but not steering them at all. Not telling them to do anything at all. It gets very frustrating for a lot of people who go to traditional counseling, like the one guy who said to his counselor after 26 weeks, can you tell me what I should do, doctor? And the doctor said, yes, come back next week. <laughs> Nuthete or nuthetic counseling is actually about speaking truth into someone's life. And that's what Paul says the whole church there was capable of doing. Put this down. A watchman who only watches is worthless. A watchman who only watches there in Ezekiel, son of man, I've appointed you as a watchman to the nation of Israel. If you see the enemy coming and you don't sound the alarm, I'll hold you accountable. You need to speak up. It's not enough to just simply say, yeah, I see the problem. Oh, no, you must speak to it. And so it is we're commanded by God to minister reproof and warning to one another. Very unpopular in the body of Christ. I know churches, we don't believe in confronting each other. We don't believe in talking to each other. Well, God's word commands it, so you're going to have to deal with Jesus about that. This is not something we have a right to simply say, well, we don't do that here. But God commands his people to do it and expects it of us. The problem is there are people that enjoy it. The problem is you've met them. 
have Bible, we'll travel kind of thing. You know? Well, let me at them. Of course, those people have no right to do this at all. They're not full of goodness to begin with. Their heart is instead filled with pride and a desire to put people into the way that they think they ought to live. But this idea of correction is kind of like that picture. You're in a parking lot. It's at night. You're getting ready to leave. You start to leave out an exit. Then you see that red sign. It says, wrong way. (laughs) Severe tire damage. That's what we're to do with one another. We're to speak truth into one another's lives. You see, believers are to warn one another in love with God's word, not because we're sin sniffers, but because we care. Acts 20, 31, if you want to jot it down, Paul says this was his ministry in Ephesus for three years as a pastor there. For three years, day and night, with tears, I did not cease to admonish each one of you. Not just in my sermons generally, but I personally got to know you and I told you the truth about your life. I told you what was going on. Do you have somebody? Let me just just think about Is there somebody in your life, anybody, who you trust and you've allowed close enough to know what's going on in your life who is able to speak truth in your life? There's like nobody would even try to do that with me. I wouldn't want him to. God wants us to have those kind of relationships where there are people that can speak into our lives and that we would allow them to do it. You know, it's been said that uh, an enemy will stab you in the back, but a true friend will stab you in the front. In other words, he'll speak the truth to you. That's why the psalmist said, "Let let the righteous smite me in kindness. It'll be like oil upon my head. Don't let my head refuse it. Oh, I know I won't enjoy it when somebody tells me something I need to correct. But, oh, God, I know that you'll speak through people. And I think it's so important as the body of Christ that we learn to allow that ministry to go on in our life and through our life. The idea is this. that The blood-bought, spirit-filled child of God ministers the word of God just like God's word ministers. I want you to jot down Psalm 1911. You know, Psalm 19 many of us uh, know, is a beautiful psalm that talks about how God reveals himself. talks about the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. Beautiful how God reveals himself. On the way to church today, I was looking up at the the trees and the median as I was going, oh, God, thank you that you made green. I like green right now. It's just beautiful. And I saw the blue of the sky and the clouds coming off the mountain. Lord, you did a good job. I just impressed with your creativity. Your, your creation speaks of your character, not just your wisdom in doing it, but the beauty and the love that you have for man that you would do something like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation does that. But Psalm 19 goes on to talk about not just creation revealing God, but revelation. He goes on there in verse 7, says, The law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. Testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. It starts talking about the value of God's word, much like Psalm 119 does. And then it says this, one of the qualities of the word of God, he says, moreover, by them, by them, what? By your word, by your precepts, by your order, moreover, by them is thy servant warned. And in the keeping of them, there is great reward. God's word warns us. You know, um, one of the metaphors of your Bible is a mirror. You know that in the book of James. We're to look into the Bible and we're to see ourselves. We're to see, wow, you know what? I'm not really living like that. You know, it says don't lie, and I just lied. 
It says don't lust, and I'm struggling with that. It says don't be prideful, and I'm prideful. It says don't be angry, and I'm mad that I am. And, and I, I see it myself in the Bible, and it's not all good. That's why the Bible says it's like a mirror. You know, you woke up this morning, you looked in the mirror, some of you went, whoa. Hey. And then there was the rest of us. And a mirror tells you the truth, whether you like it or not. God's Word is designed to do that. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged scalpel or sword, and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joint marrow, and it's able to judge. That's the word. It says discern. It means judge, creno, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's Word speaks into my life, and sometimes it hurts. Like that missionary story that the missionary gave that Chinese man a Bible. The next day he brought it back. He said, I don't want it. He said, why not? He said, every time I read it, it kicks me. <laughs> well, that means you're reading it right. Not just trying to read something to encourage you. Say, Lord, I, I want to know the truth. That's why David prayed, search me, O God. Try me. I, I'm not going to judge myself. Paul says, I don't judge myself. I don't know of anything wrong in me, but I'm not acquitted thereby. God judges me. I need God to have his wisdom, his truth applied to my life. And there are times I'm going to be blind to things I need to change. Or I'm going to have ignored it, or I'm going to have suppressed it, like David did with his sin with Bathsheba. Lived with the sin. Seemed to just go on with life. And God says, we can't go on that way. Send the guy, go tell him. Go counsel him. Go confront him with the truth. Because there are times we just get, well, to where we're comfortable in our sin. But God's word warns us. I always think of the railroad warning lights and the, the, the bells that go off. You know, you're driving along, and all of a sudden those red lights come on as you see the railroad track. And you may not see the train. But if you're smart, you won't go. You know, you may go, I'm not sure if there really is one or if it's defective, but I'm going to wait here to find out because that train could be half a mile down the road or it could be right coming down. I don't know what the rhyme or reason when they go off and when they don't because sometimes it doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to, I'm going to obey that if I'm wise. And God's word is like that for us as believers. The more you know of God's word, the more warnings you have and the more warnings you should be able to issue. You know, the brother says, well, you know, the friends at work invited me to their beer bus Friday night. Ding, 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 ding. Bad company corrupts good morals, the Bible says. Or the guy says, you know, my girlfriend says it's okay if I spend the night on the couch when I, I'm over at her house and it's so late, you know, I'm too tired. So I just spend the night there. We don't do anything wrong. Ding, 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 ding. The Bible says flee immorality and abstain from all appearances of evil. The more you know the Word of God, the more warnings you'll get that will be practical in your life. And the gal says to you, you know, my boyfriend, he's not a Christian, but he's asked me to marry him, and, and I know I'll be able to win him to the Lord after we get married. It should be ding, 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 woo, woo. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And as you learn things about your life and you're blessed that God is teaching you His Word so that it can conform you into the image of Christ, He's also equipping you at every step along the way to minister to others. It's not just for you. It's so that the fruit of your life, the evidence of your life, and the wisdom that God has poured into your life, you might love somebody else. Now you say, well, Bob, they might not receive it. Oh, they might not. But that's not the basis upon which we confront. Jesus said, didn't say, if your brother sins... And you really think he'll receive it, go and reprove him in private. No, he didn't say that. That's what a lot of Christians do. I, I'm not sure that would really work. I'll lose a friendship over it. I, I don't think that they'll receive Jesus didn't say they'll receive it. He just told you what to do. 
You still need to speak the truth. He's not asking you, did they receive it? That's for him. It's like sharing the gospel. He doesn't say, only share if you think they'll receive me. No, he doesn't say that. The word of God, go to the parable of the sower. Where does the seed go? Just to the good soil. In fact, isn't that what that parable is about? Let's figure out where that 25% of the seed can have good soil and do soil analysis. No, the seed goes everywhere. That's the job of the sower. And so it is with the ministry of God's word. We are to minister it and trust God with the results. A couple of applications in this verse, verse 14. First of all, allow God to speak to you through his people. Allow God to speak to you through his people. By that, what my encouragement to us is, is don't ignore the concerns of others that are brought to you about decisions you're making or things that are going on in your life. Don't, don't, don't bristle. Don't take offense and, and don't ignore them and write them off. Well, they're just critical. Maybe they are. But maybe God's using them to speak truth to you also. And by the way, let's go farther than that. Don't fail to ask for counsel. Don't, don't fail to ask godly people. The Bible says there's wisdom, there's safety in a multitude of counselors. Now, now you can take that to an extreme. I'm just going to ask as many people as possible in the church what I should do. Well, that's probably not a good idea. You know, you're going to get all kinds of answers. Yes, you should go do that. God bless you. You should never do that. You know, I don't have a clue. You're going to have, uh, you'll be more confused than ever. No, you should select people who you respect in the Lord. You see their life. You know their love for the Lord. They know the Lord and they believe his word. You should be selective about that. But it should be more than your own opinion. Listen, let me just say this. If you know somebody or you are that somebody who is completely uninterested in any wisdom that anybody could give you other than yourself, the Bible has a word for you. It starts with an F, it ends with an L, and there's an O-O in between. You can jot it down. It's Proverbs 12 and verse 15. Proverbs 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Now, some of you right here, you've just been listening to a Bible study, a sermon, and you've been ignoring the fact that right now in your life you have a decision to make or you've got a problem that's unresolved in your life. You've been praying about it, but you've not allowed anybody to speak into it. Maybe you're ashamed to share it. Maybe you don't want to burden somebody. Maybe you just don't know anybody well enough. And I'm going to suggest to you today, you're hearing this message in part because God's saying you need to allow other people to speak into your life about what to do. Maybe you say, well, I think I know what to do. Good, get that confirmed. Pray about it. Ask for the leading of the Holy Spirit. But allow God's people to speak into your life about that. And don't be afraid to do that. Put this down. Believe God can speak through you. Let God speak through people to you. But believe God can speak through you because he's God. Times people will come up to me after church and say, oh, Pastor Bob, God speaks to me through you regularly. I come to church and he speaks to me directly into my life. I'm not surprised. Not because of who I am, but because of who God is. Listen, you believe this. God knows you. He, he knows ev- everything about you, right? Isn't that what David said there in Psalm 139? You know my down-sitting and my uprising. Before there's a word in my mouth, Lord, thou knowest it already. I'm sure there are times 
God's saying, watch this, Gabriel. Bob's about to make a fool of himself. Yep, there you go. I mean, God knows. He knows it all. He knows what's bugging you. He knows what you need to do. He knows everything. He knows perfectly well. And Jesus said this. Sparrows are seemingly worthless in his society. Sold for a penny, two for a penny. But not one of those seemingly worthless birds falls to the earth apart from your heavenly father. Your father cares for them and watches over them. Things you don't care about. He said, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. In other words, God knows things about you personally, facts about you, things that you don't even know, things that you don't even care to keep track of, God cares about. In other words, if he cares about the stuff you don't care about, how much more does he care about the things that really matter to you? Well, don't think that God doesn't know or doesn't care. He does. He cares deeply. And he wants to minister to you his direction. Because God knows us and because the Spirit of God dwells in us and in his people, he'll use people to speak to us and he'll use us to speak to people. You look at the Bible and you should be encouraged to believe God can use you. God uses just a little slave girl to speak to a great Syrian general, Naaman, to give him counsel about healing. God uses an unsaved Pharisee, Gamaliel, to speak to the Sanhedrin of Israel, the Supreme Court, to save the apostles. And how was it again God gave counsel to Balaam? Who did he use? Case closed. If God can use a donkey, he can use you. Because God can use anybody. And he wants to use you. He wants to speak through you. I believe as Christians we need to say, Oh Lord, I'm not sure exactly how to communicate, but like your word says, I believed, therefore I spoke. I love this person. I care about them. I don't know how they're going to take it. But Lord, I'm concerned. And if God's put a concern on your heart, prayerfully approach that person and share your heart. Oh, I think we need to be careful about this. But at the same time, I think we need to do this. Jot down Judges 20 and verse 7. The question needs to be asked, or at least I seem to keep asking it as I read it. How is it that the Apostle Paul could say what he says in verse 14? He says, I myself am convinced. The word means persuaded. I'm convinced that you, now he's talking to a church, listen to me, a church he's never attended. Paul has never been to Calvary Chapel of Rome. Well, that wasn't called Calvary Chapel. I just threw that in. But he's never been there. How can Paul say that about the church? I'll give you two suggestions as to perhaps why, and then tell you why I don't believe either one are the reasons. (laughs) In chapter 1 and verse 5 of the book of Romans, Paul mentions the faith of the church at Rome was world famous. It was a well-known church for their faith. So the characteristic of the church in part was well known to everybody. Secondly, if you read chapter 16, which we haven't studied yet, you'll find the majority of the chapter is Paul greeting by name people he does know. 27 of them, by the way, of people that were in Rome. People who had ministered with him. People that loved the Lord. So Paul did know some of the people. But I said to you, neither one of those, I believe, is the real reason he says what he says in verse 14. Because he doesn't say, I know there are some among you are filled with all goodness and knowledge. I know you personally. <laughs> I've been there and I've seen you. Just a pastoral staff will be able to handle No, no. 
No, I believe what Paul is saying is because of the fact of what's happened in your salvation. Because the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. And because what I know about you as a congregation in general, you're not perfect. See, God uses his perfect son, his perfect word, his perfect spirit, and his imperfect people to equip one another, to minister to one another. Judges uh, 20, verse 7, is that passage, that chapter. It's one of the saddest, lowest points in Israel's history. Because what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, is repeated in Israel. And the book of Judges is relating this event. And a Levite whose concubine had been raped and died. And he takes her and he dismembers her. And he sends her body parts to one of each of the 12 tribes. It's a horrific chapter. Basically to say, wake up to the sin of the nation. And here's what Judges 20 verse 7 says, though. He says to the nation of Israel, this Levite, Behold, you are all children of Israel. Give here your advice and your counsel. What should we do with these Benjamites that have committed this sin? It's very interesting. He appeals to the fact of who they were in relationship ultimately to God. Because of who you are, you need to speak. May I say that is a thousand times more so for you. Because of who you are. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. Because the word of God is being lived out by you. You need to speak when God puts something on your heart to share. Paul is saying you are competent to counsel. Now, having said that, and I do encourage you in that regard. You know, part of this issue for me is this. I believe that Western evangelical Christianity emphasizes our individual personal relationship with the Lord. That's both got a good side and a bad side. You hear people say, I now have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He became my personal Lord and Savior. And on the one hand, I say, amen. On the other hand, I say, well, that's not biblical. <laughs> because the fact is the Bible never uses those terms. He must become your personal Lord and Savior. Yes, you need to personally receive him. But the Bible doesn't emphasize that the problem is in our culture as Christians, when we emphasize our personal relationship with the Lord, we can live in a relationship in a bubble with God. We come to church and we worship, we pray, but we do not interact with people. We frankly see no reason to. None at all. We can have this great relationship with God, we think, but it doesn't need his people. And we're wrong about that. We've studied that in the nature of the body. And if anything, as Christians, well, I believe you need to have time in the word yourself and time in prayer yourself. Absolutely. Some people, they only have a relationship with God when they gather in church. They have like a perpetual group date with God. They never go beyond that. There's no intimacy. But while I'll emphasize the importance of spiritual disciplines, you need to be in the Word. You need to be in prayer. Take pains with these things. Grow in them. There is this other aspect of letting people into your life, letting people get close enough. That's one of the reasons we have agape groups in our church, accountability groups. The Bible says there in Ephesians 5 that the person who is spirit-filled is being subject to others. In the fear of Christ. That means you are submitting your will to others about decisions you're making. They have to know what's going on in your life. They have to be allowed to speak into your life. It's risky. You may not like what you're doing. Yeah, I know that's hard. There are too many Lone Ranger Christians. You've heard that term before. I'm not sure that's really the right word to use. Lone Ranger. At least he had Tonto. 
But there are people that come into churches. They're there for years. Nobody ever gets to know them. And it's every week, Kyle Silver and away. Who was that masked man? I don't know, man. He's amazing, though. He's gone. Is that you? Don't let that be you. In 2013, say, Lord God, I want to be known in this church. I want to risk that. Maybe for some of you, you've been wounded, you've been hurt, you've been damaged. You're saying, never again. Don't close yourself off to the way the Spirit of God wants to work, must work, through other people and through yourself. And by the way, the way Jesus worked. Now, having said that about counseling, may I say again, so you do know, man's primary need is not counseling. It's conversion. It's not regression therapy. It's repentance. It's not sympathy. It's salvation. Counseling doesn't save Anyone, Jesus Christ, can save everyone. The Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But Jesus' style is so different than the style of people today. Think in John 8 of the woman that was caught in adultery, brought to Jesus. The law of Moses says that we should stone such a one. What say ye? What does Jesus say about that woman caught in adultery? Oh, I know that you've come from a dysfunctional home. That your dad ignored you and you've transferred your need from a father to other men. You need to sign up for 26 weeks of therapy and join AA, Adulterers Anonymous. What did Jesus say? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. How's it? That's the kind of counseling I like. The fact is conversion is the most radical change of people that the world's wisdom will never be able to handle god can cleanse the sinner change their nature and conform people into his image by the power of the holy spirit you say oh yeah 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 but that's not enough for a homosexual that's not enough for an alcoholic or a pedophile those are just fancy words for sinner and paul said to the church at corinth such were some of you but you were washed you were cleansed paul said i was the chief of all sinners. But I found grace. Do you believe that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is powerful enough to change any sinner in this world? I do. I believe he's already paid for it, not just for the power that they would be forgiven, but so that they'd be set free from whatever addiction or sin that they're in. Well, God's style of ministry, God's style of counseling is far different than this world. Don't adopt the ways of the world. The minister in the ways of the Lord. It won't work. Like Saul's armor, it won't fit. You'll not even be able to engage in the battle, much less see victory. But instead, we say, Lord God, would you fill us with your goodness? Would you fill us with your very character so that we're living out a relationship with you and love each other enough to speak truth and it's respected enough to be heard because of the way that we're living? Would you fill us with a knowledge of you, a relationship with you, Lord? as well as a commitment to your word, believing it ourselves and ministering truth to those around us. God, use us, I pray, in this coming year. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you.